This time on the Rule Right Radio podcast with New York Mike. Sonny Barger joined the Hells Angels in the early 50s, and he really did, he, he changed everything. He, he organized everything. He created what the modern Hells Angels and the modern motorcycle club is. He did it with his, his personality, his perseverance, his it just uh, he was a bright, really bright guy. I always say that the uniting factor, aside from the camaraderie of the and the patriotism of most clubs, at least the ones that I know, especially the Hell's Angels, who I, I I think I could say I know fairly well, there's that. But they're uncompromising, and and I think I could say that about Sonny. She, he could make a deal. He knows that he knew how to compromise. He created so much, but he wasn't going to take a backward step to anybody or anything. He wears black denim trousers and motorcycle boots and a black leather jacket with his name on the back. He does a patriotic podcast called Roll Right Radio. His name is New York Mike, and welcome to the show. This is Roll Right Radio. I'm New York Mike. Thanks for being there. Thanks for listening. And today, a lot of things I really want to talk about is, again, everything going on is things that we really... We want to talk about things because I, I want to give a perspective, as as I, I and I talked about this in the last podcast about perspective, maybe a little different perspective, but today's podcast is going to be about Sonny Barga. Sonny Barga died yesterday, and most people know. I think most people know because Roll Right Radio is about rolling right, rolling theoretically on a motorcycle. That's what I do. I ride Harley Davidson motorcycles. I've had a long, a long life of riding Harley Davidson motorcycles since the '60s, and owned San Diego Harley Davidson from 1993 to 2020. That's uh, 27 years, just to make the math easy. <laughs> but my life has been much more affected by politics than anything else, any, whether it's motorcycles or any of the other things that I've been involved with in my life. Politics shines through. I think it's true for everybody, but most people don't recognize it. And so the people that I've known and got friendly with over the years and stayed friendly with are, are, tend to be people that are just as aware Maybe they're not as consumed as I am with politics, unless they're politicians. Um, and I guess I've been one. But one of the things about Sonny Barger, and Sonny Barger's been known and identified by a lot of people in the media and everything else, is either the face of the Hells Angels Motorcycle Club or the founder of the motorcycle, the Hells Angels Motorcycle Club. Sonny Sonny got into the club early on, but the club was founded before he he joined it in Oakland, where he lived and grew up. He's got these books out there that he's written and published. And if you have any interest in this, it, it, it's really is fascinating. It's our world. 
It's the world that we live in. A lot of people don't understand it. You might There's a lot of notoriety about motorcycle clubs in general and Hell's Angels specifically. And a lot of the foundation. Now, clubs have been around since, I don't know when, the Galloping Goose and the Rebel 13 and whatever, back in the 20s or the 30s. But it was in the 40s after World War II that they started flourishing as the soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines came back from the war and wanted to continue that camaraderie. And so Sonny Barger joined the Hells Angels in the early 50s. And he really did, he he changed everything. He, He organized everything. He created what the modern Hells Angels and the modern motorcycle club is he did it with his his personality his perseverance his it, it just a, he was a bright really bright guy i always say that the uniting factor aside from the camaraderie of the and the patriotism of most clubs at least the ones that i know especially the hell's angels who i i, I think i could say i know fairly well there's that, but they're uncompromising, and and I think I could say that about Sonny. She, he could make a deal. He knows that he knew how to compromise. He created so much, but he wasn't going to take a backward step to anybody or anything. Back in the '60s, I got out of the military after Vietnam and went to school. I don't think that there was a lot that I knew about what was going on till I got to New York. My dad died in 68. I went to New York, take care of the family. I'm downtown, I'm around, I'm doing different things. And I noticed, again, I apologize for talking about it, but just the way it is, the the constant barrage of hate from everybody, everywhere, whether they, you know, you, you, you're, you're there in the club and you're just wearing, you know, jeans and a T-shirt, but they're talking about the veterans, the war. That was everything. It was all consuming. But here were the Hell's Angels. The Hell's Angels were, were taking on the, this whole anti-war, you know, the, the, the thrust of it was everywhere. And here were Hell's Angels taking them on. Most, I don't know of anybody else that I could point to and say, yeah, they, they took down... These, they stood up for the veterans. They stood up for the warrior. The, 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 not just the vets who got out, but when we were serving. The Hells Angels did that all over the country. And that was awesome for me. And, you know, going, going to New York, trying to, you know, take care of my family. And I get to New York and my, my friends, I had a lot of friends in New York. Um, and, and I, you know, started my business at Kennedy Airport where my dad was. And but before I did that, I was trying to find something. And it didn't take a long time, but um, one of my closest friends, and you know, I was a, 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 a um, I was a, a, a karateka. I, I, that's what I did, uh, all, <laughs> all almost all day, every day. And my dojo brother, who I trained with almost every day, was Louis Delgado, who at that time was number one in the world. Um, and, and, and Louie and I were best and, and close friends. So we were doing things and I get to the city. I call Louie. Uh, we were together. He's, his dad actually, he's from New York city. Um, but his, his dad 
was living in South Carolina where I was and where I trained every day. Um, and Louis came down there. I knew him from New York, not that well. Then he came to South Carolina. There was about two year period that, like I said, his dad was a painting contractor and he was painting, I guess, Fort Jackson and wherever else they had contracts. And so Louis and his, his brother was Felix was living there with, with his mom and dad. And he come to the dojo and trained with me at Barcoots Karate School. I was the head instructor there. And so I get to New York and I look up Louie and, you know, we tried different things. We tried different businesses and Louie was helping me out. I mean, not, everything wasn't just martial arts. We actually tried a moving business. <laughs> we did a lot together. And in those travels in the city, I'd go in and train at the 7th Street Dojo, which was on Avenue B and 7th in a building owned by Owen Watson, who was also head instructor. Yeah, I guess he was. And we would train down there four or five nights a week after everything else. Then we'd go out to the different places. And one of the things that happened, I was hanging out at different clubs and met some guys. And of course, I'm riding a Harley. Of course, my bike was still in South Carolina. My dad died suddenly. We're talking, we're getting friendly. So they asked me whether I want to prospect. I didn't really understand the whole club thing at the time. But they asked me that and told me I was already hanging around. That's what you got. You'd be a hang around and you're a prospect. And so I was still hanging around and talking to these, it was just two, these two guys who I got real friendly with. And I said, yeah, that sounds good. I really appreciated the, the Hells Angels when I knew of them. Again, a bunch of tough guys. And I felt comfortable with that and everything else that they stood for, especially the fact these are the only people speaking up and standing up for the Vietnam veteran. And not just, again, the veteran, but the warrior, the war fighter who was there. And I wanted to, now I wanted to go out and help. Like I said before, I went to these anti-war rallies and I got up there and grabbed the microphone and said my piece and told these people what I thought of them. And I got some good results, but I wanted to do more. And then... I had my four-year-old sister, my 13-year-old brother at home in Queens where I was trying to earn a living and take care of them. And I had a lot of obligations to do that. I was 24 years old. And they told me what the obligations were to the club. And I said, nah, I don't think so. I can't do that. So I said, no. And then Louie and I, again in training, there was a big place. Before Studio 54, the biggest club in New York City, and this is 1968, was the Electric Circus. It was on St. Mark's Place, right in between 2nd and 3rd Avenue on St. Mark's. And, I mean, it was big. It was right, it was expensive, too. And they got a, a yuppie crowd. I don't know if we call them yuppies at the time. They got a yuppie crowd, and they used to charge five, this is 68 $5 to walk in the door. So... In those days, there were a lot of people doing a lot of drugs or a lot of people selling drugs. So look, if people were doing drugs and things happened, there was people were overdosing, there was this. It happened. But you can't stop people. What are you going to do? Walk around? And, but what we were contracted to do was stop the selling of drugs. And anybody was dealing with drugs. So that's what we got at this, again, the 7th Street Dojo. If you don't know New York City, St. Mark's Place would be a 
about, oh my God, it's been a long time. I'd say it's about 10th Street. Yeah, something, 7th Street, 10th Street. So 7th Street wasn't far away and the dojo was pretty close and they needed help. So Owen Watson got the deal from the Electric Circus and paid him well. (laughs) Of course, we're training in the dojo. We got some pretty well-known black belts. And I don't know if there were a thousand in the whole country back then, but Chaka Zulu and there were just some great guys that were part of this whole crew that got this deal. But the Hells Angels Clubhouse was right there on St. Mark's Place, right across the street from the Electric Circus. And a few years later, they moved to their famous clubhouse on 3rd Street, which is a world-famous place. But this is before that. And the president of the club was a dude named Sandy Alexander. I'm going to get to Sonny, I promise you. But I just want to give some background. So they tell us that we have to meet with Sandy Alexander and the Hells Angels to make sure everything is kosher. So I go back a long time with these guys. And then as the 70s rolled on, we made our peace. We, we met with him for an hour, an hour and a half. Everything was great. It all, it all worked out fine. But then, as I said, as the 70s rolled on, the, the notoriety of the Hells Angels grew, and of course with Altamont and all that. And then there was a lot going on in New York City about free Sonny Barger. Sonny Barger was prosecuted, chased, and everything else. Um, there were all these things. I hadn't met Sonny at that point, but there was so many things going on in support of Sonny. And as, as n- notorious as the club and its reputation was I knew these guys they were great guys they they weren't a bunch of nasty criminals they were you know hard riding Harley Davidson guys that had this 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 camaraderie again of you know this club that they belonged to that meant uh, so much to them and believe me the rules and, and that's why I said, no, I can't, I can't do this. I, I, I wouldn't follow those rules. But these guys did. And it meant a lot to them. Their prospecting, period of time, whatever they had to go through. And I wouldn't do it. And so I, I, I had, a, you know, a, a lot of respect for them. I, I knew what they went through. And, of course, understanding who and what Sonny Barger was is... Um, is, is something that I, uh, I, I understood the, the magnetism of his personality. And they all had a tremendous amount of respect for, for everything he was doing for this club and organizing it and getting them all set up. It was, it was so much of his ingenuity. So I moved to California in the late 80s. And I had friends in in the club and different people in the club. And it wasn't a big deal to me. I didn't spend that much time. I remember riding motorcycles, riding Harleys around the country, which I always did. It was kind of cool to, they were just good guys to me. You keep on hearing about the notoriety. I'll tell you that some of these guys that I met were pretty badass. But they weren't nasty. And 
their primary goal in life wasn't to be criminals. Some of these guys were hardworking guys in different industries. And on the West Coast, I met a lot of guys in the movie industry. I, I remember Cisco, who was president of the Oakland chapter. Man, that guy was cool. And he was like an encyclopedia of rock and roll. And he did a lot of a lot of cowboy movies. He did a lot with horses in the movie. But there were other guys like that. And it, it's not like I was running around with the club. But then when I bought San Diego Harley Davidson, I started doing events. And in 1994, I was already doing things, I think, before I bought the club with the show The Renegade. And so things were going on. I bought the club. And I wanted to do some things. Some people come to you with ideas. Can you do this? Help us with that. And the American Diabetes Association approached us. And we put together a great event. At, then it was Jack Murphy Stadium during the Padre. You get hundreds of tickets for kids with diabetes to go to the Padre game. I forgot what the event was going to be called. But it was in August of 94. And before the event came off and I had Lorenzo Lamas as the Grand Marshal. He's going to sing the national anthem, which Lorenzo did a great job of that. As Acapello, yeah, he, he sang the national anthem. You talk about patriotism, there you go, personified again with some of these guys. They don't get a lot of credit, but Lorenzo Lamas is one of them. And, and he was doing all that, doing the national anthem. We are going to do this event. We had things printed up. We were committed. A lot of people knew about it, especially in the American diabetes community. And then the baseball strike came. Boom. Everything is done. Scramble around trying to put pieces together. And I remember Lorenzo saying he made a commitment. The Navy was flying him out to an aircraft carrier and whatever. And he said, look, I'm, I'm going to take this. Mike will try to put this back together. But here it is, August. The ba baseball strike is on. What are you going to do? Wait, the kids are going back to school in September. So you didn't have a lot of time. So what did I do? I called, and I can't remember what prompted me to do it. But probably maybe it was some friends of mine or some club members, it could have been my friend Fuzzy, who at the time was my service manager at San Diego Harley-Davidson, and somebody said, you should call Sonny Barga. So I did. And I asked him about that. I said, would you come down? I said, we could change the whole the whole texture of this place. But it was the Renegade. Who's bigger? <laughs> bigger the Renegades and the Outlaws, and we could put this together and we'll make it. In. And totally agreed to it. And we had an interesting conversation Later on, he came down and we, we had dinner. And I remember talking to him about, I so appreciated it. And he told me he had had throat cancer when he was in prison. And he wanted to do something, now that he's out, to do something to the for the community and raise money for cancer victims. And he called the American Cancer Society, whatever that, that organization is. And they didn't want him to represent them. And he was pretty upset about that. So when I called to help out the American Diabetes Association, especially because I told them there's a lot of kids. We had hundreds of kids that the uh, Padres was giving free tickets to. 
And I said, that's not going to happen, but we still like to raise money. And he was right there. And that was his explanation. But the point is, this was just a, a great, generous guy. I remember he rode down from Oakland. Now, he did a lot of the work as well to, to publicize this. And people came from all over. I mean, it wasn't just all over the state, but mostly all over the state. Hell's Angels from everywhere. Um, but there were a few that came in from Colorado, from Las Vegas, Arizona. They came from all over. And believe me, we, I don't remember what we charged, but it wasn't, wasn't small. And they all came. San Diego Harley-Davidson at the time was right off Sports Arena Boulevard. I mean, it was a small place. I think it was we were in three buildings. Well, two and a half buildings. One was about, I don't know, two, three thousand feet. The other was about another three thousand feet. And then one in, in the middle was the service building that was like a three-car garage. <laughs> So, and then we had the yard, which wasn't that big. But we had the whole of Ollie Street, right off Sports Arena, and we took up the whole street. There was, I don't know how many Hells Angels, three or four hundred at least, but there was a, another thousand people from all over just to come in to meet Sonny Barger. And it was awesome. And he couldn't have been more gracious with his time, with his with pictures and signatures and, and, and all the rest of it. And we had changed it from the, the venue of Jack Murphy Stadium, which became Qualcomm Stadium years later. But we changed it to the East Street Alley in East Street, downtown San Diego, owned by my friend Mike, and who generously donated. It was a Pretty big club, but not not Jack Murphy Stadium big. But Sonny got down there and spent, like, what, three days? You know, he got down in the afternoon, spent the night. We had dinner. The next day, we did more publicity. And by the way, part of that publicity, and I'll talk about this too, you know, Sonny had throat cancer. He could hard, you know, you, he it was hard for him to talk. He had to do a lot of work. He's gotten, over the years, he got a lot better, and, and the words flowed a lot better. But back then, it was still raw, and it was a little bit hard to understand it. But he, he did a pretty good job. He was going he was, he was to you know, overcome whatever obstacles there were. And I remember going on KUSI, being interviewed by then, what, Stan Miller. If anybody out there from San Diego remembers Stan Miller, great guy from back in those days, and he was one of the anchors in the morning. And we went on there, and he interviewed Sonny and talked to him about what he went to prison and talked to him about uh, cocaine use and this and that. And I remember Sonny never, never, like I said, he was uncompromising, didn't take a backward step, and he certainly wasn't going to try to avoid the issue or duck it or, or certainly wouldn't ever lie about it. He said, yeah, he said, I, I, I did with his gravelly voice. He said, but it, it's a recreational drug. That's what we did, and I had it, and I had it for my own use. But I was smoking two packs a day. Cigarettes aren't that low, but 400,000 people die of cancer because of cigarettes. 
How many people do you think die because they're using cocaine? But that's legal, and this isn't legal. And he just he just put up this great and and very he was a good debater, and did a a, a really good job of defending himself. Not he didn't say he was innocent or anything like that. He just pointed out that 400,000 people die of cancer every year. There was at that time how many people died of drugs or drug overdose or whatever. It didn't, certainly cocaine doesn't cause cancer. So he, he made that point and I, I just remember, but he, did, he also did everything he could to help promote the event and it was great. And the day of the event, we rode from San Diego Harley downtown to the East Street Alley. It was just a huge crowd of people. Sonny led the ride with all the Hells Angels and everybody fell in behind. Look, I recognized a lot of people and there were a lot of very motorcycle champions and representatives of all these different clubs, not not so not outlaw motorcycle clubs, the different the various Christian motorcycle clubs, the antique motorcycle clubs. I mean, they were all there and happy to be there. And it was a great event. And there was no incident. Sonny, Chuck Zito rode down from L.A. with a bunch of guys. And him and Sonny are really close. Chuck came down. I think he was, he, I'm pretty sure he rode Mickey Rock's bike. The Marlboro Man, the bike from that movie. Chuck Zito, very uh, well-known was a Hells Angels, I think it was in the club, 25 years. And then he decided to get out. But that this isn't about Chuck. <laughs> it's about Sonny. But, and, and, and Chuck came down. And uh, we, we just had the best time. Dennis Hoff, who owned a building across the street and was selling apartments and vacation homes and different things. Man, he, he stepped up. I remember he put up some televisions. You know, when you put these events on, you look for prizes and raffle prizes and, and all these different things. And of course, Sonny's so well known. We got a lot of stuff, but I remember Dennis Hoff who owned the uh, Bunny Ranch, the famous whorehouse in Nevada, passed away a few years ago. Another great guy. And uh, yeah, did so much and raised so much money. The event was phenomenal. But that was Sonny. Over the years, he's done these kind of things. You don't hear a lot about it. It's just different things. I remember there was um, Altamont was called the Woodstock of the West Coast Woodstock. But the AJs, the Hells Angels, they just weren't going to allow a Woodstock anti-war theme or themed event take place. They were not anti-war and nobody's pro-war. I don't want don't ever put those words in my mouth. But I was pro what we were doing for the South Vietnamese people. And I was pro what we were doing for freedom. And I was pro what we were doing for the Cambodians, the Laotians. I mean, this is what we were doing. And clearly Sonny Barger went into the army. He faked his birth certificate. He went in. I forgot how old he was. He told me the story. And I remember he was telling me he was he was stationed in Fort Collins, Colorado, and he went in. I probably 17 for sure, but it might have been might have been older than that. 
And uh, he was in the army. He was a, he's always been a patriot. He got out when they found out that he faked his birth certificate. And he got out with an honorable discharge. He, he served well. But, but he's, he was always a patriot. And so it, it's, it was important for me then and one of the things that meant a lot to me. So he wrote his book. And remember, the first book was his story. And it was going to come out. And I was, I was talking to him because he was buying his motorcycles from San Diego Harley-Davidson. Now, look, the, the reason that, and again, back to the patriotism, some people may not think it's a big deal. I do. All these motorcycle clubs that were just so patriotic, they had to ride an American motorcycle. Now, after World War II, there was only two American motorcycle manufacturers. There was Indian. I don't think there was another one around. I don't think any of the other American brands survived even up to World War II, but I could be wrong about that. But certainly after the war into the 50s and 60s, you had Indians and Harleys. And the Hells Angels and most other clubs that I know of, and by the way, that's not just just the clubs that people talk about being part of a, a white thing, an Aryan nation. There are black clubs. Gene from the the Dragons. I, I, what the heck? Anyway, another a really big club who was really close with Sonny, who started the Dragons and copied a lot of what Sonny did. It was one. I'm not sure it is anymore. I know the Buffalo Soldiers are huge. But, and, and there's a lot of other black clubs. But the um, the Dragons were were really big. And I remember going to the Roundup. It's a black motorcycle rally. First week of August, just before Sturgis. Every year. Every year. Thousands. 40,000, 50,000, 100,000. And talking with Gene and talking about the same thing. They had the same contract. If you're going to join that club... You did the same. You had to make the same commitment to the club, and you had to ride an American motorcycle. There wasn't any less patriotism, and and there wasn't any. This wasn't a racist thing. This is what. This is the brotherhood, and this is who they were, and so th- th- that's what they did, and so the Hell's Angels, they rode Harley Davidson motorcycles because Indian went out of business in 1953. That was it. So before 1953, just had to ride an American motorcycle. And even for years after that, because there was used Indians for another decade at least. But after a certain amount of time, the Indians were gone. Yeah, you can find a few antiques. You still can. Older bikes from the 30s or 40s. So he rode a Harley. He did not like Harley Davidson motorcycles. Now, the other thing is he was a mechanic. And him and his his brother, his uh, Hell's Angel brother, Guinea. And I knew Guinea, big tall kid. He wasn't a kid. Big tall guy from, from Brooklyn. And and he was cool. I liked Guinea. Uh, I'm not sure those guys liked each other that much. Ah, they did. But they used to bang heads all the time. And um, so they had Sonny Barger's motorcycle shop up in Oakland. And Sonny was a mechanic. And he would tell me all these things about Harley's. That he didn't like. But you know what? It was the American brand. And it was the only American brand. And so, like it or not, now 
when Victory came out, and I think, yeah, Victory was Polaris. And Polaris came out with a Victory bike. Sonny switched. But before that, he bought a whole bunch of motorcycles for me. I remember when, and I don't remember the year, but it was later on, maybe, I don't know, 2000, 2003. I, I remember he had a, a I sold him, a, he had a Road King. And then I think before the Road King was something else. Anyway, he got married and he wanted to buy his wife a, uh, a lowrider. And that was, I don't remember the year. It might have been the last year the lowrider, which I, I don't, I just don't remember what year it actually was. But it, it was a, a, a one funny at the time. I look back on it and I laugh about it now with the guy that happened. Of course, Sonny was laughing. I mean, well, the, the bottom line is the bike came in. Now, these bikes that back then were, was a little harder to get. Actually, they're kind of hard to get now, too. But the bike came as a black FXR, and it came in. Sonny, they were, he was at that time living in Cave Creek, Arizona. He moved from um, from Oakland to Arizona, and he um, ordered the bike. The bike comes in, and I get a like my sales manager. I was in my shop every day, <laughs> and so I'm in the shop, and I'm I I didn't have a job. <laughs> I had service managers, sales managers, general managers. Everybody had a job. My job was to make sure everybody was doing their job, and so. Somebody calls you, you got, a problem, you got a problem up front, the soils manager's up there, there's yelling and screaming, I run up there, what's going on? And there's this guy, this big, badass dude, man, and he's like yelling at my service manager, Mike. And Mike looks at me, he goes, okay, we, got a, we got a problem, and I'm like, well, what's going on? Well, this guy says this is his bike. He ordered the bike, it came in, and he wants it. So I said, well, the, the bike is for Sonny Barga. And... You know, it's it's his bike, and this guy's bike is is due in in another week. But Sonny, he says, "Well, you got to talk to him about it." So I go and I and I talk to him. It turns out he was a house angel, <laughs> and I I didn't even know it. I, and I go and I walk over the guy and I go, "You know, hey, what's up?" You know, that's my bike, and I've been waiting for that bike, and that's the one that came in. I said, "Well, you're gonna have to wait. Yours, yours is coming in in a few days. It might be a week. It's not gonna be much longer." Oh, I want that bike. And I and I and I said, look, I said this, but and then my sales manager comes up and he goes, starts telling the guy the story, and he starts, I don't give a rat, I don't give. A... And I go, well, you know what, you're not getting the bike, pal. End the story. So when your bike comes in, we'll call you. If you still want it, you know, great. And he's just, and then Mike tells me, guys, say hell's angel. And I go, you're hell's angel. You know, this is Sonny's bike. I don't get. I said, well, you know what. If you call Sonny, and Sonny calls me and tells me, and he starts cursing me, and then he says, you know what? I'm going to see you downtown. And if I see you, I say, no, 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 no. You want to you 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 go that route? We're going to go outside right now, you and me. And we go outside, and we start to square up, and everybody's like, you know, like getting crazy. And, and, and right now, you got to understand something. I don't know. How old was I? I don't know. 45? I don't know. I was in really good shape. And trust me, um, I, I, I'm, at that time, maybe no longer, but at that time, I was, I was feeling pretty good. 
the guy was twice my size, half my age, and I don't, I don't think I would have lasted two minutes. Two minutes is a long time in a street fight. So maybe 30 seconds? I have no idea. But, you know, I, I wasn't going to, you know, have, have to look over my back. I grew up in that kind of a world. And anytime anybody is going to threaten you, whether it's in the schoolyard or the classroom, let's just do it. So I saw that we square off and fuzzy comes running in and comes between us. No, 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 blah, blah. And thank God. <laughs> so, so about two, three days later, because we call Sonny, Sonny comes down with, you know, half a dozen guys are right in to get the bike. And bring we go out to dinner, and he's laughing. He says, I heard what happened. What do you do? I said, hey, and I tell him the story. And he's laughing at me. We're having a good time. And just the way it was, there were other times, and I, I can't tell you how many times hanging around with that guy. And, you, and you, you do get to see the other side. I think when he did the, when he, when he had the book signing, and I, I asked him, I said, why don't you, do the book signing at San Diego Harley. And he said, well, the publisher was a big-time publisher. The publisher wants to do it in New York City. So I said, well, let's let's talk to him. Do you mind if I call him? Blah, blah, blah. I call up, and I'm talking to their marketing people, and I convinced them to do it at San Diego Harley, which was great. And they send me boxes of books. Everything comes down, and Sonny comes in. Of course, this is, I don't know, 10 years down the road, 2004, five, I, I don't remember. But, you know, the, the, there's lines of people for two days, two solid days. Sonny is, is up there in the front. We got a table all set up. A couple of guys that are helping them out, standing there. People want their book. He's signing each and every one. It lasted two days. And I got to say, it was great. But... When you spend that much time with somebody, you do get to see the other side of the coin. <laughs> there were some moments that were a little touch and go. Beyond that touchy-feely book signing, shaking hands, kissing babies, doing all that stuff, signing the books, taking pictures. I mean, the whole thing. And everybody wants to talk to you. They've been standing online, and he's pretty good. But there was always some situation where someone was being an asshole or somebody would try to grab him or do something and it, it came up i gotta tell you guy handled himself really well because i know that i had to say sonny please man I don't, I don't need an incident here we so you get through those things and and when you go through that kind of experience with somebody you learn a lot about them and i i always had a lot of respect for Sonny Bog, a lot of appreciation. He, he, he is a legend, and he deserves every bit of it. I got to tell you, the, the, the people that stood on that line for two days, um, I appreciate every one of them because the following week, they had that book signing in New York City, which was where the big publishing company was all excited about. And they figured, well, let's try it out there. We beat New York by a lot. <laughs> Wherever else he had his book signing, no one beat what we did at San Diego Harley. So there's a lot of guys. And, and by the way, I've been to a few Hells Angel funerals. This is a family. 
It's not just a club. This is a family. And I give them all the respect and room and space that there is. I hope that this doesn't become some show for the authority to go up. They're trying to prove that they're fighting crime, notwithstanding all the uh, defund the police and, and the rest of it that's going on around the country. And it's, it's, it's kind of easy to say, oh boy, we got this Hells Angel funeral, there'll be thousands and thousands of people. I, I hope they don't mess it up. And, and I also hope that no matter what the club rivalries are and what's going on with all the different clubs, that Sonny Bog is legend and his life transcends all that. And I hope it could be a huge show of, of love and respect for somebody that, that deserves it so much for, for the life that he led. Just the, the dignity of his life. And you could challenge me on that all you want, but you're wrong. I, I know the man, and I, I, I just hope that this is a funeral, uh, again, of love and respect, and that none of the clubs and none of the law enforcement agencies or individuals allow it to degenerate into something other than what, what it should be. I've, I've spoken at several funerals of Hell's Angel friends of mine. I've, I, I didn't speak... And, and I want to say this, if anybody in San Diego is listening, well, there's no way if I know a lot of people are. If anybody knew O.B. Dave, and I, I loved O.B. Dave, what a, what a great, great guy. And he passed, maybe it was five years ago. Yeah, boy, it seems, it seems like it was yesterday. But I didn't get up and speak, and I've always resented that. You're at a funeral, you, you, you don't need an invitation, you just go up. And I don't know why. And I, I, I remember being in, everybody came from all over the country. And he was just a great guy. But he was great to me. I remember when I began San Diego Harley-Davidson. And, and O.B. Day was one of the, O.B. Dave was one, one of the very first guys that I met. Big guy, cool dude, always had a great smile. And he was bright, man. So smart. I needed help setting up my whole computer system. And that's what Dave did. He was a computer guy. Had a little office down in downtown San Diego, in the east, east San Diego. And um, he'd come in the shop. I mean, you know, it was, a, it was a motorcycle shop. So he came in. I met him. We got friendly. And then I found out that he knew a lot about computers and we needed help getting set up. And, and, and OB, man, he gave me so much time. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm sure that my uh, controller at the time was Diane Scott, who came from New York to run my administration and everything. And, uh, I mean, whatever time she needed, whatever help she needed, and there weren't that many employees. When I bought San Diego Harley, there were five. And by, by this time, there might have been ten. But OB Day was just such a great great guy, and, and I, I did not speak of this funeral. I spoke at Thor's funeral. It is, the point is that it's just, there's just a, um, a moment. I remember seeing Sonny at Arlen Ness's memorial service up near San Francisco in Dublin, California. And we were talking about him. And tears come to your eyes when you're there. I don't care who you are, how tough you are, and how, whatever. You, you get emotional. You lose people that you love and people that you, you care about and respect. 
And so I think that if there's anything that I've got to say is that I really hope and that this is a moment where the motorcycle world comes together, the 1% clubs, all the rest of the people, whoever else is going to be there, and I hope there's a lot of people there. I hope everybody is, again, respectful of this man who gave us so much, and his legend is going to live on. And there's a lot of people that are going to say a lot of bad things. That's the way it is. Everybody, if, if you're really, really important, and you really, really accomplish something, <laughs> the way you find how much it is, isn't by just how many people love you. You got that, your family, your friends. And, and Sonny, Sonny left us with a, uh, a statement. I was hoping I could find it and read it. It started out saying, if you're reading this message, you'll know that I've gone. I've asked this note be posted immediately after my passage. I lived a long and good life filled with adventure, and I've had the privilege to be part of an amazing club. It's just some some amazing, just kind of cool, you know? Low-keyed, and he ended it in his Facebook post that said, but also know that in the end, I was surrounded by what really matters. My wife, Zerana, as well as my loved ones, Keep your head high. I know he said something about his club brothers. Keep your head high. Stay loyal. Remain free. And always value honor. Sonny, H-A-M-C-O, Hells Angel Motorcycle Club. So, yeah, it's. I, I guess you'd say it's an end of an era. I hope not. But it kind of sort of mocks it marks the time in our history, the time in the history of the country, time in the history of motorcyclists, time in the history of American motorcycles, Harley, and now, of course, Indian. Of course, Indian, it's not Indian that was Indian. It's, it's Polaris using the name Indian. But they built a, a pretty good bike. You know, interestingly, just, just, just a thought or two, the Victory was a, a really good bike. I didn't think it was a very pretty bike, but... That's in the eyes of the beholder. It was a really good bike. And um, Indians are pretty good bike. Good bike. They put Victory out of business. I don't know why. I guess their marketing people told them to. But I wish their marketing people would get a little bit realer. They say they've been in business since 1901. That's not them. Anyway, that's what Sonny Barger wrote. So if you want to know what Sonny Barger wrote, he rode an Indian motorcycle. <laughs> that's, that's who he was. But it was American. And that's why he rode it. And that's the kind of guy he was. He was a patriot. And he earned every bit of the legend that he's going to have for eons and eons down the road. So I, I, I hope you enjoyed this little bit of history. I really wanted to get it out there to respect my friend Sonny Barger. And I hope I did him well. I'm New York Mike, and I'm out. Thanks for listening to the Roll Right Radio Podcast. Listen, follow, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.